If you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 102 is where we're going to finish studying today. We began that last week as we're going through this soundtrack series, learning about some of the Psalms of life. Uh, and again, if it's first time remembering that these Psalms, this book of Psalms in the Bible is literally a collection of songs that people used to sing, uh, ballads, love songs, uh, heartbreak songs, all kind of different things that people used to sing. And we're getting to kind of take a glimpse into the life of those people. Uh, before we jump into there, today, this Sunday, is one of my favorite Sundays in the city. I love Marathon Sunday. I love watching the New York City Marathon. I love going after church and sitting at the Pulaski Bridge and watching these people. It's about the halfway point as they come across the bridge and uh, cheering them on and literally seeing people from all walks of life, all body types and styles, all level of runners competing in this marathon. It's just amazing to me. And uh, every time I do it, I'm inspired. Like, I'm like, I want to do that. I want to, like, run across that bridge. And, like, I, I know that spot I look at. And then I, as I'm inspired, I'm thinking, I look at some of their faces and the agony and the challenge that they're going through. And I'm like, they're only halfway done. Like, they, they got another 13 miles to go. A couple of years ago, Katie and I ran. Uh, they do a race on Saturday before the marathon called Dash to the Finish starts at the UN and it's a 5k that basically just runs up sixth Avenue around the park and you finish at the marathon finish line. And so I have pictures of me like crossing the, the New York city marathon line and like posting them. I waited till Sunday to post them with everybody else. So it looked like I, I had done it. And, uh, as I was thinking about that today, this is often how we deal with this topic of depression in our life that we talked about last week, that Psalms 102 began with last week of like, when we get in these spiritual doldrums, we see people, we kind of are on the sidelines and we see people going through and like accomplishing something in life and we cheer them on. And then we just kind of look and be like, wow, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of stuff to do. Maybe I'll just stay here. Or, or we try to take a shortcut. We, we run the little 5k and post the pictures and we make our life look like it's all right. We make our life look like everything is okay. But in reality and the truth of the matter is we didn't really run the marathon. We just are making it look like we have overcome these challenges in our life. And that's a trap we often get caught in as we look last week at this idea that depression, spiritual depression can really take a toll on our life. The first 11 verses of, uh, of Psalm 102 took us on this uh, pathway to depression. And just to give you a quick reminder, basically we, it starts with withdrawal. It starts with us saying everything's okay. Some affliction comes in our life, something bad steps into our life, and instead of dealing with it, instead of talking about it with other people, we just withdraw a little bit. It says we're like a desert owl in the wilderness. We're just kind of, we make ourselves feel like we're kind of alone and put ourselves out of place. We withdraw, and then we have loneliness. Loneliness is the next step that comes in, and this is when we begin to feel isolated uh, from others, and we isolate ourselves, and the, the passage used the illustration of a, a sparrow on a roof. And this imagery of like there's life in the house, but we just kind of isolate and we feel alone and all by ourselves. And then we take the next step of aggravation where we get aggravated at people. We feel like God's abandoned us. <clears throat> we feel like our friends have abandoned us and we get upset and we just we kind of let the anger and the bitterness begin to consume us. And we start to identify more with our problem and our affliction than anything else. 
and we get aggravated and we start to be saying, this is what I'm known as. I'm known as the person who is dealing with this. And then we take these next steps of physical deprivation and spiritual deprivation where we start just letting ourselves go. We start looking to other substances or other experiences to fill the void and to, and to heal the pain. And all they really do is bring more pain in. We start to think that God views us the same way as others are and that he has no value in us. And we really deprive ourselves physically and spiritually until we end up into this point of depression. We end up where we're just deflated. It says that we're like the evening shadow. It's about to just disappear like a wisp of what life is. It to me, the, a great imagery is like a deflated balloon. It, you see it, it's just stretched, but now it's empty, and we look at our lives as almost worthless. We get to this point where we lose hope. And the truth is, many of us in here have either been there, or on the journey there, or we are currently mired in some kind of deep depth of depression. And what I want to do today is look at the second part of Psalm 102, and see what happened here. What does this writer do when he finds himself at the end of his rope? When he finds himself literally at the end of his hope? Does he just try to begin to start doing more? Does he work harder? Does he try to make wiser choices? Do more to please God and, and others in hopes that he puts enough good out in the world that good will come back his way? Or does he wallow in his pity and his shame and self-hate and hopelessness? Does he just start to blame and spew hatred and bitterness toward other people? Does he attack God and his friends and does he become defensive and divisive? Or does he just let go? Does he end it all? Does this writer just act on the feeling that life is no longer worth living and no longer sustainable and no longer even giving a chance of hope? Or does something unexpected happen? Does hope somehow break back in? Does it overcome the darkness? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a way out of this hole? Is there a way to experience pleasure, peace, and meaning and hope again? But before we look there, I think we've got to answer a question. And how we answer this question will determine how we respond. And it determined how this writer respond. And it's a very simple question. When you find yourself in despair, where do you look for help? Where do you look for help? It's a question we have to ask ourselves because at some point, when you get to the end of your rope, when you get to the bottom of the pit, there will come a time in depression when you fight through the withdrawal, the loneliness, and the aggravation, when you get exhausted from the physical and spiritual deprivation, and you will finally look for help. But this is a tremendously important and pivotal moment. When we decide to look for help, it is a turning point in this journey. And where we look for help is key. And I think we primarily look for help in one of four sources. And the first one we do is in ourselves. We start to look for help inwardly, right? We believe that we can fix ourselves. We just need to try harder, make some adjustments, learn something, do more research. We study, we discipline ourselves. We trust that the same mind and soul that got us into this hole is smart enough to get us out. But the truth is, we think we can save ourselves, but we can't. And this is dangerous. This is a dangerous way of thinking. A drowning man cannot save himself. He needs act. He needs action from an outside source. Help at its very core means that it comes not from me, but from some outside source. 
It isn't that we can't make better decisions and motivate ourselves and bring more discipline into our life. We can. And at times we need to do that. But that is not the way out. It's not the only way out. We end up thinking this way and really, truly, I want you to hear this. It is the ultimate form of pride in our life. We get to the bottom of our pit and we think, you know what? It's up to me. I'm the one that can get me out of this. And it goes back to that original sin that we talked about, which is pride. We fall back in to that trap. We think we have more wisdom than God. We have more wisdom than others and anyone else. And we can only trust ourselves. We work harder, we do more, and we find ourselves alone and back in the exact same place. And we spiral deeper than before. Hopelessness then doesn't just take root in our life. It begins to produce fruit in our life. And the fruit of hopelessness is death. So we look at ourselves, and that's dangerous. The second place we often look is this, culture, like current, current culture. Like what's going on around us? What's trending? What's new? We Google the best ways to overcome depression. We download self-help books. We add new habits in hopes that we push out the pain. We watch YouTube videos, read Facebook articles, take online surveys, and we literally open the door to any kind of advice to flow into our lives. We allow someone sometimes to just speak into lives simply because they're celebrity or because of fame or because of notoriety or because from afar it seems like they have the life that we so desperately want that we need and we desire, and we idolize them. And this is foolishness. Just like looking into ourselves as dangerous, this is foolishness. Are these necessarily bad books, bad habits, bad articles, bad advice? Not necessarily. But here's what they often are. They're often shallow and simplistic. And the other thing that they are is they are still isolating. Because I'm really not reaching out to anybody. I'm not inviting anyone in. I'm just inviting someone from a distance into my life. And I end up scrolling and looking and reading still by myself. And I don't know about you. I'm, I'm this way. Sometimes I'll, I'll watch a three-minute YouTube video on somebody solving a problem in their life or overcoming a difficulty. I'll read an article on Facebook that takes me about three minutes to read. And I look get to the end of this article and I think, why can't I do this? Why am I not the one making this video? And I have missed out that there were literally three, four, five years of turmoil in between the beginning of their journey and where they are now, and they just capsulated in just a few minutes, and I wonder why I'm not feeling better by this afternoon. We get caught up in this cultural sense that everything can be solved quickly and easily, and that's what's foolish about it. I'm not telling you to cut these things completely out of your life. I'm just challenging you to stop looking at our current culture as the primary and immediate source of help when we find ourselves in these dark and difficult times. An article on Facebook, no matter how good it is, isn't the solution to your oppression. It isn't the complete answer. It may point you in a direction, but it is not the destination. So we look at culture, we look within ourselves, and then we look to other people. Right, we, we find someone who has walked this path before and we ask them to give us advice. We share with them some or all of our struggles. We bear our soul to them and they give us their story and their experiences. We allow their faith and perseverance to sustain us for a season till we get back on our feet. And I want you to hear this. It is great to have someone in your life to walk with, to share this with, that understands, that will listen, and that will simply be with you that you're, so you're not alone. 
Let me tell you what this, this is encouraging, but I want you to know something. This is also not enough. Uh, You should have these people in your life, but it's not enough. Other people are essential in our journey out of this pit of despair, but they are not the complete answer. Just because someone else has overcome their problem or challenge in their life does not necessarily mean that they'll be able to solve yours. Their presence makes our, our pit a little less dark and a little less dreary, but we are still in it. Here's where I find myself in this trap sometimes. Sometimes I find when I'm stuck in a pit and I have others to talk to and I have others, here's what I end up, instead of moving towards solutions, you know what I end up doing? We just end up commiserating about our problems together. We just talk about our difficulties together. We don't talk about solutions, and I just end up rehashing the issues, discussing who's to blame, how did I get here, what could I have done differently, how do I think differently. But by themselves, they aren't strong enough to pull you out of the pit and save you. Which brings us to the fourth one. Where do we look for help, which is God? We finally come to a point where we realize that we need help beyond ourselves and beyond even the other what other humans and other friends can offer. We do not need a natural remedy when we find ourselves here. We need a supernatural remedy. We need somebody that is outside of the system, someone that's bigger than our fears, someone that is bigger than our, our pit, someone that is bigger than our problems, our situations, and bigger than our hopelessness. And there is only one source of that help, and it is God, our Creator. The one who formed us, shaped us, and made this world and everything that we experience in it. And what this is, is dependence. This is dependence. And this is where the writer of Psalms ends up here in Psalm 102. In his darkest moment, he didn't call out to friends. He didn't ask for advice from culture. And he knew he didn't have it within himself to bring an answer and the solution. So he stopped looking down and even stopped looking around and stopped looking inside. And he started looking up started looking up, up for help, up for rescue, and up for hope. And God was there, just like he is there for you and for me. Maybe we think of it like this, and so we we get this image in our mind like we're in this pit and God is there, and literally God is like stretching down his arm, saying, I'm here to help you. All you got to do is reach up and grab hold, and I will pull you out. And as great as that sounds, I want you to hear That's not even the correct image because the correct image is this. God isn't on the outside of the hole reaching down. God is in the hole with you. God's there with you. And he's been whispering truth into your heart and into your life from the very beginning. From the moment you found yourself there, he has never left you. And when we learn to depend on him and to rely on him, we understand that he is our refuge, and our strength. I love what Psalms 46, 1 through 3 says. It says this, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, God is our refuge, our very present help in time of trouble. That imagery is that he's already there. You don't have to call for him. You don't have to send a message for him to show up. Learning to depend on God is realizing that he's been with you the whole time. He's there. And the only thing we've got to do is change where we're looking and who we're asking for help. So let's take a look 
at how this psalmist in 102 did this. And what is the truth that was brought in in his life to help him move in this way, to understand that God was this very present help in time of need. And what I call this is the pathway to dependence, just like we had a pathway to depression where we we withdrew, we became lonely, aggravated, we deprived ourselves, and we end up depressed. There is also a pathway to dependence. And let's begin looking at Psalm 102 and see what it says. I love that Psalm 11 ends at this horrible, deep moment. And I mentioned last week that in this very first word of verse 12, we see the author of this change and stop looking at his problems and start looking at God because he says this, but, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will rise up and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. First thing I want you to realize is this. You are remembered. You are remembered. God has not forgotten you. God has not left you in this pit of despair. God has not left you in depression. You have not disappointed God because you are feeling this way, because you are depressed and down and blue and overcome. The faithfulness of God is unwavering, and it is not determined by our situation or our circumstance. There's no darkness that can stamp out the lightness of God. And while God has never promised a pain-free life or a life of material abundance or a life free of hurt and betrayal, he has promised to be there with us through everything. He has promised to be with us, to walk with us, to carry us, to sustain us, to be there at the appointed time that has to come. He's there. He's near. And I want you to hear this. Just as God does not forget us, this is what the author did here, too. He did not forget God. He remembered God. But you, O oh God, you have been enthroned forever. I love that mindset. Like It's like the guy sitting here in his, the depth of his depression, and he's like, you know what? God's dealt with this before. Not just once, not just twice. Millions of times. Millions of people. He's not abandoned them, and he's not going to abandon me. And when we begin to see this, it's not that all of a sudden everything's going to get better, but what it does is it helps us regain perspective. We start to have our perspective of hope restored. Like we start to see that it's not up to me, that it's up to me to rely on God. Look at Psalm 102, 16 and 17. We'll see what we learn next. It says then, for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory, and he regards the prayers of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. If you ever want to memorize a verse, 102.17 is an incredible verse to memorize. God does not regard the prayers of the destitute. He regards the prayers of the destitute and does not despise their prayers. I want you to hear this. You are heard. You're not only remembered, but you're heard. God hears you. God hasn't just remembered you. He is listening to you, and he is willing to talk with you about anything that you want to talk about. If you want to ask God why you're in this pain, ask. If you want to ask God why this happened to you, ask. If you want to ask God why it's, when it's going to get better, what you have to do to get better, ask. God is not scared of your questions. 
God is big enough for any question that you can give him. There's no question that you're going to give God that's going to catch him off guard, that's going to be like, oh, never heard that one before. He's not, he, he, is not, he is big enough to answer any question you have. And he doesn't take offense to your questions. Doesn't get angry at your questions. And when we pray and when we search out and we call out to God, instead of getting offensive, he actually cherishes our willingness to seek truth from him. That's what it says there. He, he regards them. He, he loves them. He doesn't despise them. And here's what I, I don't, I don't want to get into a whole topic on prayer this morning, but one of the ways that we engage with God, that we talk with God and that he hears us is through prayer. And many times we think the goal of prayer is to get an answer. But I want to I be very clear. When you study prayer in the Bible, when, when Jesus says this is how you should pray, when Jesus himself prays, he doesn't pray for answers. He prays for understanding. Prayer is not, our goal is not to get answers. Our, our goal of prayer is to get understanding. And when we understand that, it changes our perspective of understanding how we communicate and how we deal with God. In my life, I, I've had this, I've developed this practice of trying to talk to God about my questions before I, and my pains and my fears before I talk to anyone else. Why do I do this? Because if I don't, I'll end up raising questions about God to other people that I've never even given God the chance to answer. I'll start complaining that, why did God let me do this? Why did this happen in my life? I'll start bringing this up with other people. And God's like, I'm over here. I'm right here. Will you ask me that? Let me give you an answer first. And here's what happens. When we learn to depend on God, this process, and we learn to do this, understand that we are heard and we can ask God anything, what happens is it gives us that right perspective to then go, and as we are with friends, as we're with other people, then we use God's answers to, to use their answers along with that. Then that becomes an encouragement. And we can use culture. And we can even use our own willingness and our own self-control. It sets into right order how answers come into our life. God, others, culture, and ourselves. It's backwards than what we normally do. And so God is letting you know this morning, you are heard. And when we do that, we regain support. There's a support system in our life. And the base of that support system is God. I want you to see one other thing this morning. In Psalms 102, 18 through 20, it says this. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. I love that verse. It says that this is what he wants you to remember, that he looked down from his holy height from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who are doomed to die. Once you hear this, the next thing is that you are rescued. When we learn to depend on God, not only does he know that we know that he remembers us and that he hears us, but he does rescue us. And this guy is writing this, and I love what he says. He's like, write this down for generations to come. Write this down for people that hadn't even been created yet. Like, he's literally talking about us. When he was writing this, he's like, I pray one day in 2017, there are a group of people that read this and are dealing with this and are encouraged by the fact that I can tell you God has rescued me. 
God looked down on me who was doomed to die, and he rescued me. He's giving testimony to that, just like you and I can give testimony that lasts beyond our lives. But I want you to understand something, too. This idea of being rescued, I think, is the toughest step to embrace in our life. Because we may remember that God is there, and we maybe even realize that he's in the pit with us, and we start to ask him questions, and we're having these conversations, and finally he shows us this way out, and we must decide to take it. But here's the problem. As simple as it sounds, it isn't. Because sometimes, and most times, God's way of rescue is not my way of rescue. God's answer to the problem is not the answer I had to the problem. He may not heal my sickness. The pain of loss may not dissipate. The financial crisis and loss may not be avoided. The relationship may not be healed. However, the hopelessness we have in those situations will be removed. God doesn't always change our circumstance, but he is always willing to change us in our circumstances. To take away the hopeless and give you the ability to sustain, to sustain, to stand, and to live in victory, even in the darkest of times. You see, it's, it's not about happiness and joy and excitement again, like trying to just get to those. Those will come back. The first step of depression, letting go of depression and standing on dependence, is realizing that the answer that God gives you may not be a change in situation, but a change in your own heart. And this is the definition, the true definition of dependence. It's learning to depend on God even when your circumstances don't change. To have hope even when the situation seems hopeless. This is what makes it supernatural. This is why it's beyond us. And so many of us think that the opposite of depression is the removal of troubles, the removal of pain, the removal of sadness. We think that getting over depression is by removing something. Instead, I want you to hear this. We get past depression by adding something. And what we add to our lives is Christ. It's not removing a circumstance. It is adding Christ. John 16, says it this way. This is Jesus talking to his disciples when they are about to walk into a very dark time. One of the darkest times they're going to face. He's about to be arrested. He's going to be killed. They're going to watch him be crucified. They're going to see their hope smashed. Their lives are going to be in peril. Everything that they thought they believed in is going to seem like it's ripped out from under them. And here's what he says. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He's telling them it's coming. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In your trouble Whatever tribulation comes, he's telling them, you can have peace because I have overcome the world. Jesus never promised to remove your troubles, your tribulations, your trials. Instead, he said he gave, he came to give you peace in your tribulations, peace in your trials. Do I wish that trouble would disappear from the world? Do I wish trouble would disappear from this country, this city, from my own life? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that has never been the case. We've never had world peace. We've never, our country has always had moments of conflict within each other. Our city and in my own life, 
there's never fully been peaceful circumstances. But I can learn to live at peace through those circumstances. Through God's grace and his love, we can have peace in a world that does not, will never have peace. I can have peace and be an instrument of peace as I walk through this world. And the outcome is this. When we do this, we regain hope. Not by subtracting something from our life, but adding something to our life. I want us to close our time today by literally have a celebration of dependence. A chance that we can come together and celebrate that our power, the power of dependence over depression. And I want us to celebrate not by the subtraction of trouble in our life, but instead by the addition of Christ in our life. And the one of the ways that we do that is a spiritual practice called communion. And so before us today, in just a minute, we have these representations of dependence that God gave us through Christ. The first is a piece of bread. And this piece of bread represents the body of Christ that literally took on the troubles of the world. The body of Christ that literally took on your trouble, your depression, your pain. It is a body that was broken for us, and it represents the life of Christ and how his life, we find hope, we find peace, even in trouble. When we look at the bread, we should remember that Christ is with us. He is with us now. He has walked this earth and he has given us the spirit of God to dwell within us and guide us through any turmoil in our life. We aren't alone. Luke twenty-two nineteen says this, as Jesus was presenting communion for the first time, he said this, and he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread is a remembrance that God's, the, the body of Christ is that he is with us. We aren't alone. The second thing is the juice, the, 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 the wine. The juice represents the, the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. It represents the death of Christ, this sacrificial death that brought payment for all of our sins and all of our shortcomings. And when we look at this juice, we're reminded that Christ is willing to pay any price for you, even his own life, to rescue you from any darkness and even from death. This isn't just wishful thinking. It's actually a covenant that God has made with us. We don't have to say, I hope this comes through. It is actual demonstrated covenant. The blood of Christ set that covenant into place. And there's a promise that God says is, if you depend on me, I will love you with a sustaining love that you can never lose. I will be there with you. There's joy in this life and peace to know that there's life beyond our physical days. We have hope and the blood of Christ helps us remember, just like the bread helps remember God is with us, the blood helps us remember God is for us. God is for us. So as we take these two, in Luke twenty-two nineteen, it says this, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, he passed it and said this, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. That's what he was telling. I'm with you. I'm for you. And so as we take these two elements today, it's literally us in a way saying, God, I depend on you. I need your body to remind me that, that I have hope, that you are with me. I'm not alone. And I need your blood to remind me that there is hope in any trouble and you are for me wherever I go. Now, let me give you some instructions about how we take communion here and and why we take communion and what the scripture says about who should participate 
and communion. There's really two qualifications for those that he says should come to the table. It's those who have turned their life and surrendered their life to Christ. They've made peace with God. They have turned from their sin, turned from themselves, and they have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. It's an act of surrender. It's an act of dependence. They've stopped looking at themselves. They've stopped looking at culture. They've stopped looking at other people, and they've started looking at God and said, God, I'm yours. I need you. You are the only answer. The second thing that it says must be in your life is that we must have peace with other men and other, other women, people in our lives. That we don't come to the table knowingly with hatred in our hearts toward other people. That we don't approach the table saying, I can have peace with God, but I can still be angry with somebody else. Those are the two requirements to come to the table. And you know what that really requires? Dependence. To trust God. Even in your darkest moment, even in your most troubling relationships, you trust Him and you depend on Him. First step out of depression. First step back to healing. It's not a step you take. It's literally falling into the arms of God. Saying, I need you. I depend on you. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we'll have the tables available here. And there'll be a piece of bread and beside it some juice. And as you come, you would take and you dip it in, take the bread, dip it in the juice. And then you take it. Uh, take it around here. You can take it back to your seat and have a time of prayer. We'll have some people around the table. If you need prayer, you want somebody to pray with you, they're available to do that. You want to come with as a family or if you're here by yourself and you say, I don't want to do this alone. Find somebody and connect and say, hey, let's do this together. Let's walk in this way together. Maybe there's somebody in here that you're like, man, in this season of your life, maybe it's been a season of depression and there's somebody in here that has, has walked with you. They've been that voice of truth in your life. Come and share communion with them. But in just a moment after I pray, the tables will be open. We'll close with a song in a minute. It says, your time to respond to say, God, I depend on you. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me?